0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in African Studies. I'm Jacob Ivy, one of the hosts of this channel. Today, we'll be talking to Seth... Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in African Studies. I'm Jacob Ivy, one of the hosts of this channel. Today, we'll be talking to Seth Markle about his new book, A Motorcycle on Hell Run, Tanzania, Black Power, and the Uncertain Future of Pan-Africanism, 1964-1974. to just recently published by Michigan State University Press in 2017 as part of the Ruth Sims Hamilton African Diaspora series. Seth Markle is an associate professor of history and international studies at Trinity College. His new book attempts to convey both the character of modern nationhood in Tanzania, as well as the activists in the diaspora who shaped and were affected by it. Seth Markle, welcome.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me.
0: No problem at all. Seth, could you tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to the field of African studies?
1: Uh, sure, um, you know, being a historian, uh, I'll probably be long, long-winded on this response because I really feel like it, it does go back to, um, you know, when I was an undergraduate student uh, studying Africana studies at uh, Tufts University in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, you know, I was really introduced to African Americans, kind of. Traveling to Africa within this context of uh, of Pan Africanist struggle, um, and uh, I was exposed to that history even more when I when I studied abroad. You know Trinity College, where I teach as a liberal arts college, and and so I do want to tell this story just because of how kind of transformative that experience can be. So I was studying at the University of Ghana and just started doing research uh, about African-Americans who were there during the 1950s and 1960s when Kwame Nkrumah uh, was the, the leader of Ghana and, and Nkrumah was somebody who was a, a Pan-Africanist. He, he really advocated uh, for African-Americans and people from the Caribbean islands to come to, to Ghana during the 50s and 60s and, and participate in building you know, one of the first, uh, the first uh, sub-Saharan African uh, nation to gain its independence to come build that nation. And so I was attracted to that and got exposed to scholarship by uh, Kevin Gaines and others who were writing about it. But I was also exposed to African-Americans living in Ghana in the late 90s at the time. And so I really started to pursue that question in that research uh, and uh, for the past 20 years. And I really came to to learn about Tanzania by following the works of of Malcolm X, who I talk about in um, the first chapter of my book, uh, kind of seeing what he was doing after he leaves the Nation of Islam in 1964, goes on this independent route and creates uh, you know, a secular organization called the Organization of Afro-American Unity, he's the one who really starts to bring Tanzania to uh, the attention of, of African-Americans in particular. And so I start that story there, and, and it was really kind of researching Malcolm's speeches and his writings where he, he's, he's kind of advocating or identifying uh, a number of African nations um, like Algeria, Ghana. Um, places that he, he's telling African Americans, like these are the places you need to watch. These are the progressive, newly independent nations that you need to build alliance with. And, and so that's where my my story starts. Really, with the first chapter is is Malcolm laid out this kind of groundwork. And, and how does this generation of African Americans and Caribbean intellectuals and activists? who are identifying with really a kind of pan-Africanist, Black nationalist uh, approach to activism and, 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 and connecting with, with Tanzania, how are they going about doing that by, by, by traveling to Tanzania uh, and, and working to help build um, um, the Tanzanian nation?
0: Oh, indeed, indeed, and and uh, and we'll talk about Malcolm X a, a bit later because I do think it's probably one of the more one of the most fascinating chapters in the book. I have to ask though, because I know our audience want to know. Probably one of the most fantastic things that you have is the title, "A Motorcycle on Hell Run." So you you outline where this where this comes from right at the beginning of the book, but but I'd like you to sort of ask where did this title come from, and building upon that, why do you think, as you say. This sort of became the symbol of the search for a new conception of nationhood and belonging within Tanzania.
1: Sure, um, you know the title. You know, again, you're kind of going through various iterations of, uh, of creating a title, and 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 this was uh, actually a conversation I had with uh, some people that uh, were reviewing my work and and uh, and uh, kind of offering some really good critique, as well as a conversation I had with uh, students. You know, I took I teach a class roughly about the book, about kind of Pan-Africanism in the 20th century. Uh, And so really, you know, in doing research, I I, I identified this individual, Robert F. Williams. A lot of people don't know about him, but he was considered this rival to to Martin Luther King. He worked for the... the NAACP, which is the uh, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, uh, you know, a, a major civil rights uh, group in the United States. Uh, but he was working down south. He was a former war veteran, and he started to advocate armed self-defense. You know, which was something that a lot of people don't know uh, was part of the the movement, uh, not just the nonviolence. There was actually a discussion within the movement around using armed self-defense as a strategy and tactic. And so Williams really advocated this, and, and as a result. He, he was uh, identified and targeted by the United States government. He had to go into exile. He went into exile to Cuba, later China, and then he tries to, to, to get refugee, political refugee status in Tanzania. Uh, and while he's there, uh, he goes on a motorcycle trip from Dar es Salaam, uh, the coastal city, the, the kind of political capital at the time in Tanzania, and goes on this 1,300-mile journey to Zambia which is a neighboring country of Tanzania. And he takes this road uh, that's called or nicknamed Hell Run because it's incredibly treacherous. It's kind of leads from the city into the rural. And uh, he does this on a motorcycle. uh, And he does it with two companions, an African-American expatriate and a Tanzanian mechanic. But then he comes back from Zambia by himself. And he writes about this at this this journey, this adventure. And I think that really speaks to what African Americans were doing. They're coming to Tanzania. They're being very experimental with what they were trying to do as far as contribute to nation building in a way that was mutually beneficial to both the movement in the US or Jamaica or Trinidad, uh, as well as beneficial to the government in building, in um, trying to create this kind of socialist nation. And so I just really was a, a Attracted to this idea of being on a motorcycle, it's kind of unsteady. Um, going and kind of pursuing something that they've never done before, and not really knowing what the outcome or the journey would be like, uh, and and really talking about this this idea of confronting modernity. I mean, you know, there's a lot of studies, of course, about African independence after 1945 and the ways in which that. African states and peoples are really trying to define themselves as these citizens, right? And really trying to create a new kind of Afro-modernity, if you will. And so I kind of felt, yeah, I kind of felt like that trip encapsulated, Robert Williams' trip encapsulated what these African-Americans and Caribbean intellectuals and activists were really trying to do uh, in carving out this new Kind of path um in, in collaboration in in pan African collaboration with uh, one party with a one party state and and nationalist leaders
0: yeah and, and indeed and and I would be remiss to ask when, when you were doing research, uh, were you able to go along hell road and and see what it was like?
1: Um, unfortunately, no, uh, but I have gone on sort of you know other sort of long road trips that that kind of gave me this you know, really good idea about what Robert F. Williams and others were, were really trying to do, or, or how the trip, uh, again, uh, impacts the way they view the world. Because I think in a broader framework, this, this book is about, I, I'm interested in diaspora. I'm interested in diaspora identity and consciousness and the ways in which Uh, Tanzania in this case, uh, which was kind of regarded as like this new homeland for African Americans and people who were descendants of the transatlantic slave trade. Here they are going back to Tanzania, seeing themselves as these citizens and trying to contribute constructively to to what the government was trying to do. Um, But when you look at it from a diaspora framework, uh, you begin to ask questions about how the homeland is constructed, what are they trying to do in terms of uplifting the homeland, and then specifically how is the homeland responding to these people coming over and saying, I'm part of this project, we can work together, I can help you out in, in building this nation. Uh, and so that's kind of the the overall framework is what happens when diaspora uh, really kind of uh, – uh, approaches this question of returning home. Uh, what happens when you do that in the context of African decolonization, anti-imperialism? Uh, and, and so we do see a lot of uh, nostalgia. Uh, do see a lot of uh, experimentation with projects, uh, and you do see a lot of um, kind of challenges and and, and 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 setbacks that that really make this project something that doesn't necessarily sustain itself over time. You know, it's very short-lived.
0: Yeah, you, you, you definitely hammer those points home again and again. I think that's one of the big major strengths of the book. Um, and, and related to that, and sort of related to the wider diaspora, I found probably one of the most, I think, fascinating elements uh, was the personal connections, the, these personal encounters that are discussed in the book. Uh, I particularly enjoyed the idea of uh, Malcolm X and uh, A.M. Babu meeting in the lobby of the Shepard and Hilton hotels in Cairo. I, I love this image in my mind. Um, and I was wondering... What impact do you think meetings like these had on the emergence or or the solidification of Pan-Africanism during this period?
1: Sure. Uh, You know, that story is, you know, a really great story uh, because I think it illustrates that you know these connections these these collaborative projects couldn't happen without a without that personal connection without a kind of friendship and people getting to know each other on a more you know intimate level these things could have never happened and then even when you bring in babu who was again for for listeners a, a zanzibar Zanzibari Marxist, Pan-Africanist, who was part of the the, the Tanzanian government, who was uh, very radical. Uh, him and Malcolm became like really close friends. They had a lot in common. And yeah, they met at um, an Organization of African Unity conference uh, in Egypt. And, and the great thing was that, you know, Babu, it took a lot of people on the Tanzania side. That's why I consider, you know, this book something that kind of straddles African American history, Caribbean history, Tanzanian history, because you can't really tell this story of what diaspora peoples were doing in Africa or in Tanzania without telling how these Tanzanians were facilitating it. You know, there are really pe- there are people that were again a part of these one-party state institutions that were um, understood where African Americans were coming from as far as their oppression in the United States were really attracted to the idea of international solidarity. Um, were uh realized that the information that they were getting from the United States about the uh racial situation in the US was uh was not necessarily a full picture was not necessarily the picture from African Americans but something that was more crafted by the US government uh and the press and so these people really took an effort to say like okay I want to get to know uh, not only these African-Americans, but really try to understand their point of view. Obviously, they didn't necessarily agree on race and race consciousness and things like that, but um, there were these points of connection. Uh, and so these people were really, really important. I call them bridges. They really helped facilitate these sort of projects of initiatives that African-Americans and Caribbean peoples were trying to, to put in place on the ground in Tanzania. Um, but on another level, they got to know each other you know, in, at bars, at uh, clubs, in their homes, you know, they really created these these personal connections that, for a lot of people, last till today. And and and, and, and while and while, unfortunately, the story is kind of like this thing around a failed project, but. To look at it as this failed project, I mean, anytime you're looking at Black-led social movements, you don't necessarily see a a large sort of massive victory when you're fighting against imperialism, white supremacy, et cetera, et cetera. So while this 10-year sort of project didn't necessarily work out in the long term, these people were ready to create bonds of friendship that lasted into the 80s, 90s, until the present day. And I think that's important as well, you know, can't lose sight of the fact that this was a moment. That facilitated kind of political development, um, facilitated people rethinking their identities as far as race, class, gender, culture, uh, and that's the kind. Of, those are the small victories I, I think that that people shouldn't lose sight of when 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 they when they when they tackle this book.
0: Oh okay, and and I would agree with that completely. And I think that it's it's something that even if you, you look at it from a pessimistic viewpoint, you know there are celebrations that that need to come out of this book that they have to be made. Um, along those lines, though, that there is this level of positivity in the relationships that are established across the diaspora. I, I was particularly struck when uh, the Pan-African Congress and the ANC, uh, the African National Congress of South Africa, lamented the death of Malcolm as sort of another Lumumba that had been killed because it's imperial projects. Um, at the same time though, that sort of leads to my next question, there seems to be a lot of difficulties and problems within these projects as well and creating these interconnections. And would you mind discussing a little bit with some of the major hurdles these leaders and organizations face during this period you're talking about?
1: Sure. Um, You know, the Pan-African movement uh, definitely uh, sees the shift that happens after 1945 with the rise of independent nation states. Before, if you look at that movement, it was a lot of uh, grassroots organizations and individuals from Africa, Caribbean, America, who were trying to work together uh, around anti-colonialism, but they didn't necessarily have to deal with what an independent state uh, having now a role to play, even a leading role to play in the Pan-Africanist movement, what happens when that's a new factor or force that the diaspora has to contend with? Uh, Because when the state's involved, um, those relationships are not necessarily um, horizontal anymore. They're more vertical and hierarchical. Um, So these African-Americans and and Caribbean intellectuals who didn't have state power now have to work with um, the one-party government, which has its own specific set of agenda its own specific agenda, and then, you know, try to incorporate these people who want to be involved in whether it's book publishing or education, um, conference planning, whatever they're trying to do, uh, whether as doctors, technical skills, uh, 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 people who are, uh, you know, playing various roles uh, in society. So they had to contend with that new power dynamic. And the state was very, uh, I would say the Tanzanian government, Tanzanian state was, was, um, Very cautious uh, in incorporating African Americans into these projects. They're saying, you can do this, but you can only do it this way. So, an example would be sort of freedom of political expression, you know, while in Tanzania, um, you know, critiquing allies of the uh, Tanzanian uh, uh, government, um, particularly allies, allies of the OAU, the Organization of African Unity, which had some rulers who were non democratic rulers involved, but because of this alliance, uh, that Tanzania had, you know, there are certain restrictions that they placed on their activism. And, and that stuff kind of, those sort of tensions begin to play itself out um, over these various projects. Um, I can think of in, in my second chapter, I talk about the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was a major.
0: I, I was just about to ask you about that because that, that seems to be one of those big questions of, you know, you have, you have SNCC coming in and Silky Carmichael and, and that, that division that exists between those two sides or, or that, that conflict that exists, I think is a perfect example of those problems that they may have.
1: Right. Right. And it ends up and it ends up and, it, and really, you know, Stokely, you know, now, you know, he, he, he changed his name to Kwame Ture, but at the time known as Stokely Carmichael, um, although they had good intentions, of course, and they were trying to build this kind of alliance with Tanzania, with Tanzanian government and party, its ruling party, um, you know, Carmichael was very you know he was a, he was in his mid twenties you know he he'd been catapulted to kind of being the national spokesman of the Black Power movement, kind of filling the void in leadership uh left after the assassination of malcolm x um so he was someone who was very confident you know uh very arrogant in a way um and he came to Tanzania and just started to critique the african liberation movements uh nation building the direction of nation building in African countries, and just kind of went out of bounds. Uh, and that would have implications for what Strict was trying to do as far as create a, a program that would send uh, African-Americans with technical skills to Tanzania. That never actually ended up taking place until many years later, largely because of um, Stokely's uh, impact on or Stokely, because of Stokely's experience in Tanzania. Uh, from the government side, I mean, they had a big sort of meeting of the party uh, when Stokely was there, but they assigned someone to kind of watch over him. Uh, they had to get word to him that he could no longer say certain things about certain governments. Uh, and so it was not necessarily this triumphant sort of experience where these relationships were solidified. Uh, that's why it's part of like an introductory chapter because it was a process. It just didn't immediately happen. Like, hey, let's have a uh, let's do something together on the Congo. It, it really took this relationship building to happen. And I don't want to say that Stokely and Snick at the time were building these relationships to not to the extent where the government um, fully trusted them in,
0: in in kind of carrying out some of their programs inside the country. Oh, and, and I think it is an incredibly insightful chapter as, as you have these two uh, emerging identities that are taking place in the 1960s and 1970s. And I think, again, it it illustrates that fact that this is not a, a one nation story. This is not a, a one organization story as a whole. Um, I, I, I want to ask because he is probably one of the more important characters of this book. And that of course is uh, Julius Nyerere, the, the first president of Tanzania. Um, you know, he, he's a powerhouse in African history without a doubt, but what do you think your book adds to our understanding of, of this towering figure of African history?
1: Oh, that's a really great question. Um, well, one, I think that I don't think people knew the extent to which Nyerere was, um, you know, kind of uh, lauded in the in the African American you know political community. I don't I don't think they they know to the extent to which that he kind of was the first you know bridge, uh, someone who who didn't necessarily well actually you know explicitly spoke out against racial discrimination in the United States uh, and someone who explicitly invited African Americans to to come to Tanzania. Uh, so that's one thing. I don't think people people really knew that. Um, but I also think too that. He wasn't somebody that, I mean, he opened the door and he gave African-Americans in this diaspora a lot of leeway in a lot of ways too. you know, kind of saying, we are allowing you to come. Uh, We are allowing you to to um, set up projects and work with the government, I uh, give you access to the government, giving you resources uh, to, to to do some of this stuff, particularly with the Six Pan African com- Conference, which was organized uh, largely by African-Americans from, D- from Washington, D.C. I mean, he gave him a place to live. He gave him travel money. So he did all these things that put in place uh, this opportunity for this kind of experimental nation-building project to really play itself out. And I don't think... That people really knew how accommodating he was. And it wasn't just in rhetoric. He was actually, uh, you know, making sure that 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 or he's actually targeting African-Americans as a specific sort of group that could not only um, kind of promote Tanzania inside the United States, but also had the mindset really the mindset, the loyalty to the project, to the socialist project that he really thought could could be infectious in a way by having them there uh, and having their presence in the country. Uh, I also think that people kind of see Nareri as somebody who um, was this sort of nonviolent, you know, this kind of promoter of nonviolence. And when we get to the mid-60s to the 70s, here's somebody who's fully behind armed resistance and the liberation movements taking place in central and Southern Africa. Uh, you know, I don't think, I think it's kind of like with Mandela. A lot of people don't know about the Mandela of the early sixties. You know, the guy who was, you know, reading about, you know, guerrilla warfare and, and getting military training, you know, Nereri was someone again, who, who support behind the African liberation movements, again, I think is, is, is really underappreciated. Um, but Nereri was able to again, facilitate these African-Americans into that whole network. And that was incredibly important for them because this was the first time for a lot of these people that I talk about who actually had access to to state power, you know, they're sitting there, you know, they're meeting with with government officials, they're meeting with Nereri, they're meeting with major party leaders. And, and that's something, and that was something that was very, very new uh, and and really exciting and, and, and a learning experience at the same time. Um, so uh, that's the way I think people should kind of see this person uh very pragmatic you know uh he's someone who was a visionary um, but i think also understood that you know post colonial nation building was a gradual process it wasn't immediate you had to take sort of steps towards toward reaching this larger goal of of in naray's case ujama you know socialism uh and and the fact that he saw african americans and people in the diaspora as part of that project is 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 uh you know something to be commended for
0: yeah. And, and, and you anticipate my next question uh, about uh, Ujamaa is, I, I'm curious, what do you think the inherent appeal from, from a Pan-Africanist perspective uh, Ujamaa, um provided for the, uh, the, the wider diaspora as a whole? Um, what, 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 why is it something that seems to have an attraction uh, to many of these figures who span across the diaspora?
1: Um, so there are many points, I think, of, of appeal, uh, for African Americans, I mean, it, it, of course, it does start with Nareri. They saw saw him as somebody who was visionary, saw somebody who was ethical, principled, um, you know. Uh, so that was sort of the first point of attraction. Whatever he's doing since he's leader, you know, we should follow the developments in Tanzania. And, and you see that with the African American press, you see that with civil rights organizations, and then you see it intensify after you know Malcolm X visits there in 1964. Um, so you first you had that the fact that he spoke out against racism in the US uh the fact that he was a a a, an, a a a proponent of uh of ending apartheid in in South Africa which was an issue of importance uh to the diaspora as well um so these small sort of Policies were very appealing. Uh, African Americans who identified with Pan Africanism, uh, who identified with this idea of international kind of African unity, they saw some of his decisions as being a part of that. So, not only allowing for liberation movements from Mozambique, South Africa, um, Angola, um, Namibia, not only allow them to set up military bases. At, um, in Tanzania and to serve as a place of exile, uh, but then also the, the the efforts to unify mainland Tanganyika with Zanzibar to form the Union of Tanzania in 1964, that was also seen as a, a decision that Nereri was somebody who was committed to Pan-Africanism and Pan-Africanism uh, movement building. And then coming to your question, Ujama, you know, in 1967, when uh, Nyerere kind of lays out uh, his vision of Tanzania society as this social society based off of these kind of communal values that are very African, right? He's not borrowing from necessarily, you know, saying that we need to replicate uh, European communism or socialism. Africans have this kind of communal ethic rooted in its culture. For African Americans who at the time were coming of age, there was this cultural revolution uh, uh, where they were beginning to look towards Africa and trying to find out about the African aspect of their identity. They're reading about Africa's ancient histories. Um, They're you know, reading about the African liberation movements and the leaders that were coming out of those movements. Uh, they were trying to identify with Africa on a political and cultural level. And here's an talking about, we have these African cultural values um, that are pre-colonial in nature. We need to go back to that. And for a group of people who were a minority in a a racist capitalist society, having an economic system that exploited them for centuries, having this alternative sort of uh, economic society presented to them that was African, quintessentially African, very appealing right, on a kind of cultural level and political level. Uh, and so, um, you know, if you read Nereri's writings on Ujamaa, uh, not only the Rusha Declaration itself, which is really the policy document, but then his writings on Ujamaa in his in the books that he published uh, leading up to its declaration in 1967, he, he doesn't talk about socialism strictly as an economic thing. He talks about it as a humanity thing. Uh, he talks about it as this, um, uh, as a society that's based on a, a set of uh, humanistic principles. We shouldn't be exploiting each other, right, for money. Uh, And and just breaking that down in the simplest way um, um, really spoke to some of the aspirations of African-Americans who at the time were really trying to figure out different alternative societies that wasn't capitalistic, that wasn't racially um, hierarchical. Uh, And so so Ujamaa kind of presented that model uh, that they they embraced. Uh, You actually do see in uh, Black America, for people that didn't necessarily travel and settle in Tanzania, you know, they're beginning to take on Kiswahili names. Uh, they're beginning to uh, form cooperatives. So Ujamaa was being spread. You know, it was a, an idea that wasn't just seen as a policy idea, but something that was a, of a, a broader ideology in itself that that they thought could be useful um, in, in in their in their struggles against uh, 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 racism on, on a global scale
0: indeed and it, it's such a resounding characteristic of you know his time as president and really this 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 decolonization period as a whole and it, it's something that I think you give really good emphasis to and at the same time cast it on this this global scale um, speaking of sort of the the intellectual ideas that are driving this period. Uh, Intellectual discourse is kind of an important theme in your book. Um, And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the issues related to education or or publishing and how they shape the relationships between uh, black power and Tanzanian nationhood. I'm I'm thinking specifically you spend a good deal a whole chapter talking about uh, uh, Walter Rodney's time at the University College of uh, Dar es Salaam or or the successes and failures of certain publishers like Drum Spear. Uh, Could you talk a little bit more about
1: those yeah you know uh, again I'm gonna kind of go back to, to Malcolm X first because he he kind of lays down this this platform or this 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 agenda that african-american activists and others could follow on on you know uh, strategic approaches to uh, approaches to alliance building with with uh, the Tanzanian uh, government and party uh, and one of the things he kept harping on after he visits Tanzania, when he's in Tanzania, before he goes to Tanzania, when he's in Egypt um, at the uh, OAU conference, uh, and then later when he returns to the United States and he's uh, giving speeches throughout New York and Harlem uh, and, and telling people about his travels to 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 Africa and to Tanzania specifically. And one of the things, and one of the co- the consistent themes is Malcolm X critiques the the, the corporate media uh, and government uh, and the government and state controlled media as well because. Uh, what he was able to see once he was touched the ground in Africa was that it, there was very limited sort uh, resources uh, as far as books, magazines, uh, newspapers, uh, journals, things that are being uh, shared uh, in, in a far more uh, mass scale, and so w- Malcolm. W- was trying to impress upon African-Americans this need to build these alternative communication channels uh, between uh, African-Americans and Africans, uh, where they're speaking to each other without it being filtered by um, national uh, major uh, media outlets as well as the government. Because, you know, in doing research for this, you know, I I was looking at... um, USIS reports, which is the United States Information Services reports. And if you look at the reports from like 1960 to the mid 70s, I mean, they wouldn't touch the the, the black power movement. It was very much about the moderate civil rights leadership, Dr. King, NAACP, Roy Wilkins—these uh, are the people they're talking about as being uh, the, the the type of African Americans that that uh, Tanzanians and Africans should be identifying with. Uh, and at the same time, they're they're criminalizing uh, the the more radical elements of the movement, the people like Malcolm X and organizations like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. So these people were getting a uh, really uh, a lot of misinformation. So that project was really important. The educational project of of in the context of Drummer Spear Press producing their own books history, culture, about African diaspora and African history, politics, um, producing their own books, uh, largely written by African and, and Black authors, uh, and, and having a way to distribute it, not only to Tanzanians, uh, youth in particular in Kiswahili, but then also to African Americans as well. Uh, and their whole idea was saying that, look, we're up against centuries of, 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 again, characterization of African people and Black people in these very kind of racist uh, uh, constructions. Uh so we have to tackle that. Uh we've been told that we don't have a history. We've been told that African are savages. Um we have to create our own, we have to write uh our own material, we have to create our own knowledge uh, and recover knowledge that's already been produced and and, and have it circulated. Uh you know, the DramaSphere Press was not only producing books, they also set up a, a bookstore. Uh and, and this was the place where you could find pretty much anything. Um uh, that alternative canon that was uh, coming about um, in terms of African literature and diaspora literature from novels to plays to to history books uh, to speeches and writings. So that's one thing is, is, is the need to set up this transnational dialogue um, to share their histories and share their perspectives was really, really important. As far as what Walter Rodney was doing at the University of Dar es Salaam, uh, as an historian and lecturer in the history department, uh, is, is, you know, his set of classes that he was teaching. And and I really, uh, appreciate, um, the Walter Rodney foundation for, for giving me access to, to kind of, uh, classified, um, aspects of his, uh, collection. Um, um, and part of that is kind of his curriculum, uh, the, teach, the courses that he was his, the teaching at the University of Dar es Salaam, which really gave me insight in what he was trying to educate uh, to largely African students. And I'm talking about not only Tanzanians, but the University of Dar es Salaam also brought students throughout East Africa and Africa writ large uh, to study at, uh, at what was really a kind of cutting edge on radical education uh, at the highest level um, for like a 10 to 12 year period. So Walter Rodney, if you look at his uh, syllabi, he's teaching courses on uh, the history of transatlantic slave trade. He's teaching courses on the civil rights, black power movement. He's teaching courses on the Russian Revolution. Uh, and so... He's kind of educating these young, radical Tanzanians uh, about Pan-Africanism, really about seeing the connections between uh, resistance, not only in the African diaspora, Africa world, but also in the European world as well, and seeing these connections and lead to to inform them about what they were doing outside of the classroom uh, at the University of Dar es Salaam um, with the formation of the University Students' African Revolutionary Front. So education are like two major themes, but approaching it from, like you said, the angle of book publishing and and circulation, as well as the angle of, of higher education uh, and, and, and teaching.
0: Yeah. And, and, and it's, I, as I was reading through those sections, I could only imagine what it would have been like sitting in that classroom with Walter Rodney lecturing it. It must've been an amazing experience for those students as a whole.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I know they were, uh, I was reading through, you you know, as a, as a, as someone who was uh, really creating a, a kind of cadre of African historians, you know, what, that's really what Rodney was doing. Rodney was somebody who really understood the situation that he was in. He was like, my role is to be this professor, this educator, and to try to educate students um, to not only leave with technical skills, but also leaving it with a kind of anti-imperialist sort of worldview and Pan-Africanist worldview. Uh, but he, You know, I was looking over his letters and looking over his curriculum, and and he was somebody who was, you know, um, traveling to see his uh, PhD students doing field research and doing these uh, check-ins and updates. Uh, You know, he was someone who was very hands-on with that mentorship. Um, But then the other sort of quality that Rodney brought to the table, uh, he was very young. Uh, again, here's he produced, you know, um, his, his major book, uh, How Europe Undeveloped Africa, before he turned 30. And he was very young. And so a lot of the, even the graduate students and students were, were not that far in age. And so they really were able to build a friendship, uh, you know, with How Europe Undeveloped Africa. I mean, his major reviewers were, were two students, two Tanzanians. He would give them the first copies of of the manuscript. Uh, so here's somebody who really took seriously his role as a mentor, uh, as well as, uh, as teaching students the kind of, his version of history, which was a very kind of Marxist, um, you know, unorthodox approach to, 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 to studying history.
0: Yeah, in, in, indeed, indeed. Um, so you conclude your book with a, a section entitled Undoing, uh, where you discuss the successes and failures of the Sixth Pan-African Congress. And, uh, and if you'd like, I, I'd love you to go a bit more in detail about what you see as the major successes and failures of this uh, Pan-African Congress.
1: Well, um, I I mean, first starting from a a, a kind of grassroots level, you know, I I, I really feel like the Six Pan African Conference of 1974, which brought independent African nations, represented from independent African nations, represented from non-governmental organizations, together for a week at the University of Dar es Salaam to talk about the future of Pan-Africanism, about unity, about decolonization. You know, So to organize a global conference on that scale, it was so many actors involved that I really feel like this Six Pan-African Conference is a book in itself. Yeah. So for, for me, I approached it really from the major organizers of it who were a bunch of um, African diaspora peoples from United States mostly, um, who were part of what was called the international kind of steering committee. Uh, They were the ones that were doing the major organizing for this work these were young people. Again, a lot of them were hadn't even turned 30 yet, and they were organizing an international conference. Uh, so the one of the successes is the kind of development and experience that they got out of that, the political experience they got out of that. They traveled all over the place. They met with um, African liberation leaders, presidents, heads of state, uh, and they really kind of put together something that ended up taking place and really being, uh, an opportunity to really hash out ideological differences. Uh, and depending on where you're approaching it, from what angle, uh, it was success for some, and it was a a really bitter, bitter disappointment for many. Uh, so, uh, but so one leadership development on the ground, you know, the kind of mentorship they got from, um, uh, heads of state from people like C.L.R. James from Trinidad, a longtime activist uh, uh, in the Pan-Africanism movement. So that was one success. Uh, I do think that the fact that they got all these people together to really incorporate African-Americans into what was really a state-centered project by the time, with Pan-Africanism after 1945 and the emergence of these independent states, they really took hold of the Pan-African movement and really made it a more continental-based movement, uh, meaning that the question of how do we incorporate the diaspora really got put to the wayside in a lot of ways. And they're really talking about what states and governments can do regionally and continentally uh, in in decades to come and so african americans were in the diaspora were trying to carve out well where do we stand uh can we be involved in this conversation and they were able to participate in this conversation officially as a delegation Uh, so that's uh i think a, a a big success because what we see later with uh what became uh the african union formerly known as the organization of african unity is that they do have a diaspora component uh in in how they're talking about Pan-Africanism. It's not just uh, reduced to the continent and nation states. So they really brought that conversation. They didn't let that conversation um, die. I think the other thing that was important was that from a diaspora point of view, I think the conference really solidified this position they had on U.S. imperialism. Uh, I think that was one of the the, the, the the biggest messages that they wanted to get across to African governments, starting with Malcolm X and then later on. We have lived in U.S. empire, we have experienced racism, we need to really highlight and unpack the sort of racist undertones of its foreign and domestic policy, of its foreign and economic policies towards Africa when talking about the U.S. And they really pressed that point and it really got on the agenda. And if you look at the resolutions, you do see that form of consciousness among African governments in in, in being uh, wary of U.S. empire. So um, I think it's great that that was put on the, was able to remain on the agenda. Um, and then I think you know some other smaller sort of successes uh, at that conference was um, just the experience of the non-organizers who went there uh, who had never been to an international gathering of that kind who were introduced to the kind of structures of those structures of those sort of uh, of those um, events. And then we're able to kind of take that home uh, to the United States um, and kind of educate uh, other activists as well as the community uh, on a larger scale uh, about what's happening in Africa, Um, because I think what happens after especially Six Pan-African Conference in 74, you have, you know, the independence of Mozambique in 75 and Angola. But then the Pan-African movement shifts from uh, this to this focus on the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa. And uh, you really look at the Six Pan-African Conference as putting that again on the agenda as a a primary concern. And African-Americans played this contributory role to the end of apartheid in, in uh, South Africa, by getting involved with the divestment campaigns, by raising awareness in the United States, by advocating for it through um, boycotts as well as le- legislative um, um, policies uh, and so I think that was uh, also a kind of more indirect outgrowth of, of the conference
0: yes and and it's true, and I think you you do not definitely i think emphasize it really well for that and and building on upon that. You end the book discussing legacy. And beyond the scope of this 64 to 74 time frame that you've created, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about your feelings on the long term legacy of this period of Pan-Africanism. I know you've touched on it for a little bit, but, but do you think there are some underlying legacies that we really need to appreciate uh, for this particular period?
1: Yeah, you know, when when writing this book, I think, you know, primary audience, you know, besides it being a kind of academic audience, but, you know, I I come out of uh, kind of movement building, uh, working with young people in a pan-Africanism context here in the U.S. and places uh, like East Africa. And so I I was kind of writing to uh, activist movement builders of today as well. And I feel like the big lesson out of that is, you know, uh, especially when thinking about the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement, which has a lot of potential. Potential to be international, but is not necessarily uh, pursuing the international agenda as strongly as what we see in the past. And, and hopefully this book kind of says that there are these avenues and ways to approach international solidarity. Uh, so that's one legacy that, that remains and still there. Uh, in my uh, conclusion, I kind of moved to um, looking at it the memory, like you said, the legacy, how is it being memorialized? How is this era being memorialized uh, today? And, and so I didn't really want to go into talking about, you know, kind of the regional kind of state-led Pan-Africanism that we see today, where we don't necessarily see the kind of relationships being built with, with more kind of progressive organizations uh, in the diaspora, really something that's driven by the state, a lot of NGO stuff that's, and we can get into the whole critique with NGOs in Africa and, and to what extent they're doing work as well as just contributing to the problem but we don't see that kind of collaboration anymore. Uh, but where we do see it being uh, talked about uh, where we do see it as this sort of um, moment of inspiration uh, of resistance is is in kind of cultural movements and, and we see that with hip Hip-hop is the biggest sort of cultural phenomenon uh, for young people across the globe. I mean, millions and millions of, of young people are are embracing hip-hop culture and music, uh, using it as a tool of education, empowerment, resistance to, to their forms of oppression. and And so in Tanzania, after socialism, mid-1980s, we see hip hop culture emerge and particularly with rap music and you see a set of artists who are beginning to look back at the Ujamaa era, who are beginning to educate a a new generation, a younger generation about what happened in the past and they're looking back at the Ujamaa era with nostalgia um, but they're also looking back at it to critique their present, to critique Tanzania's move to neoliberalism to critique global economic globalization and how it's led to uh, incredible amounts of unemployment for, for young people and so Um, they're the ones that are talking about Nereri. They're the ones that are talking about, hey, Malcolm X came here in Tanzania. They're the ones that are making references to the Panthers. Uh, And so uh, uh, they're kind of serving as these uh, historians in a way um, for uh, for a completely new audience. Uh, So that legacy remains in the context, I think, of a culture movement uh, more than anything. Um, We don't necessarily see at least to my knowledge, again, there's a lot happening with hip hop continentally with Africans trying to connect with each other. There's a lot happening in the global hip hop movement where, um, um, People from all across the African continent, from Latin America, Asia, Europe, are trying to connect um, and create this larger um, kind of political platform or agenda uh, about hip hop, how hip hop can unite and how hip hop can um, uh, be a force of radical change. Uh, and you do see that with Tanzanian young people are connecting with people in kenya south africa uh senegal uh so hip hop holds that potential um for a new form of of 21st century pan-africanism if you will um but i don't think we're going to replicate what was happening during what I'm talking about, I, I just think the lesson is that, you know, if you're going to work with governments, you know, you're going to probably have to give up a lot. Um, you're going to have to give up a lot of autonomy. Um, you know, uh, um, you're going to have to uh, uh, deal with a set of uh, challenges and obstacles um, when working with the state. Uh, and so that was something that was explored. And and, and we see those these conclusions of, of of these projects not necessarily working out. Um, so it might signal this shift towards a more transnational kind of grassroots type of organizing um, that we're seeing, but, can, uh, but there's so much more that can happen with it.
0: Yeah, all, all of these, are, I think, are, are, are great questions and thoughts that the reader is left with when they finish with the book. Well, Seth, we've taken up a good deal of your time, but before we go, I was curious if you could tell us a bit about what you're working on now and what, you, what we could look forward to seeing from you in the near future.
1: It's going to be pretty short because I just told you, (laughs) Uh, uh, you know, I looked at my this book as kind of part one to uh, a larger story about how diaspora and Tanzania interact. And so really the second part of this book is looking at uh, a diaspora made culture. Uh, hip hop and how it's traveled to, to Tanzania and how it's been appropriated by Tanzanian young people and used as this tool of, of you know, uh, of resistance, of identity formation. So it's really looking at youth, urban youth cultures um, through this hip hop lens and. Um, And that's part two. So it's really uh, a history uh, of Tanzanian hip hop, uh, taking it all the way back to its origins in the mid 80s and then kind of following it through to the present. But uh, I'm not necessarily approaching this project as a book. It's really something that's going to be more in the realm of digital humanities, a very interactive, multimodal kind of presentation, uh, just because I think hip hop is so visual. Uh, of an of a culture uh, that to kind of capture it just in in text form may not do complete justice to the project. So uh, I'm working with uh, collaborating with a professor uh, at uh, Howard Universities, Howard University uh, in Washington D.C. we're we're trying to do a three year project that looks at gender and language uh, in hip hop in Tanzania and South Africa. Um, and doing this through a series of documentary short films. Uh, so we're collaborating with some filmmakers in uh, Tanzania and South Africa and the United States. And and we're kind of serving as these uh, not only consultants really producing of this project that really looks at not only women's participation in hip hop, the ways in which they they work within a very male-dominated space, uh, but also a, a comparative look at two completely different movements at different stages of development um, uh, presently um, Because I do think we really feel like young people, youth, you know, this question of African youth and where they're at and where they're going um, is is a question that I think is really um, has really got scholars and researchers interested in because they represent, you know, in a lot of African countries, majority of the population, the most vulnerable um, to things like crime and and child soldier issues, and so it's just a big. um, It's yeah. We just hope that we can look at hip hop and show that. We don't necessarily have to look at hip hop as a political movement, as a Pan-Africanism movement, but really try to appreciate it as an alternative form of cultural expression where youth are really trying to tell us something about their marginality, their oppression, their dreams um, uh, about the future and about the future of Africa.
0: That sounds like a fantastic project, actually, and I, I, I think I, I can speak for myself and hopefully I can speak for the audience saying we're, we're all really looking forward to seeing that come together and both reading, listening, and, and seeing it as it, uh, you know, uh, fully forms uh, over the next, uh, you know, as long as it takes. But, yes, that's that's actually fantastic. All right. Well, Seth, thank you very much for this conversation. This has been a wonderful talk overall. We really appreciate your time.
1: All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.